Would you join me in a word of prayer one more time? Father, thank you for the gift of children. Thank you for the abundant gifting you've given the families of this church. And we pray today for the salvation of our children, that all of them would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd bless them as they hear from your word this very hour, that today may be the day of salvation. And we pray for a robust spiritual walk with Jesus through all of their years, not that they would only believe in him, but that they would have a deep, meaningful relationship with him, never to depart from the path, but always growing and loving. We love you, Lord, and pray for your blessing upon our time around your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as author Frank Sonnenberg, he articulated what are called common habits of mediocre people. These are habits that either keep mediocrity or breed mediocrity, mediocre meaning something that is low to average in quality. He cites first complacency. This is someone who's made it to the top. They can rest in their laurels. They can live in their accomplishments. They grow complacent. There are those who have no conscience anymore, where appearances become more important than outcomes. A third habit is the know-it-all attitude, where learning gets put on the back burner. They eventually become obsolete over time, unable to grow or connect with the world around them. Another common habit is apathy, where one has underperformed for so long they forget what excellence is. And then there's the void of candid feedback. Rarely do they receive, and of little interest do they have in receiving feedback, never learning from mistakes. If you look around the world today, particularly our world, our society, you may find that this is becoming a new norm, mediocrity. We're rewarding mediocrity. Anything above your worst is your best. But this was a problem long ago with the people in Israel. This was a problem with God's people in the Old Testament. They were stuck in a rut of worship. God's people were back in their land. They were back at their temple. They became complacent, satisfied simply to be called the people of God. They lost their conscience. Worship became about appearances. They thought they knew it all. They stopped consulting the word of God to inform their worship. They grew apathetic. Their worship had been broken for so long, they forgot what excellence was in worship. And no one told them any different. In fact, convenience ruled the day. They had no feedback until the man named Malachi, sent from God, informed their conscience. If you have your Bibles, open them up with me to Malachi. We're picking up this morning in chapter 1, verse 6. This passage is a call to give God your best, not your leftovers. This is a message about the priority of worship. Bob Coughlin 
He writes some of the songs we sing from time to time. He defines worship this way, quote, Christian worship is the response of God's redeemed people to his self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ in our minds, our affections, our wills, and the power of the Spirit. Now, it's possible for you and I to stall out on this, to fall into a rut. It could be that our gathering together, that, that it slips and falls to the side, or sin hinders authentic praise, or even we, we come here and we, we go through the motions. These things, they do happen. But our aim today is to learn from the breakdown in Israel, to hear God's voice on their worship and to examine our hearts, repenting and changing as we need to, and to dig out of that spiritual snowdrift and move along that smooth road of fellowship. Now, as you hear this message this morning, I want you to know this is not a message today about church leaders and only church leaders. The main rebuke this morning is going to be by God through Malachi to the priest. And rightly so. I mean, the priests, they grew complacent. And they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing according to the word of God. They had certain attitudes about worship that resulted in certain actions about worship. And I'd say also in our day, God certainly holds church leaders to a standard. In the New Testament, this is bore out for the office of elder. They're going to be more culpable or hold a greater accounting before God. But at the same time, no, this is a message for all of us. By the end of our account today, we'll meet an average Joe who wasn't doing what he said he'd be doing. It was a word for him. And more than this, when we go to the New Testament and we read passages like 1 Peter 2, we we learn that we are all priests. Verse 5, you are a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. So I hear this message as it applies to you, to each of us, a priest of God, a Christian. Secondly, this message this morning is not a message that's going to uh, attack rituals. We're not here to to attack rituals and and call them bad. One commentator on the book of Malachi says, quote, the prophets never oppose rituals as meaningless, but ritual that was meaningless. In other words, God's anger here is that his people are disobeying his word on sacrifices. This is then permitted by the priests. He doesn't want them to stop rituals, but he wants them to do it with all of their heart and with all of their hands in accordance with his word. And this means then that for you and I, there's nothing wrong with rituals. In fact, it's almost impossible to get away from rituals or traditions as a church. Every church has them. Uh, from, From the outset, tradition was part of the church. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. So here this morning, we're not out to attack traditions and and say they're bad or that they're wrong. Rather, we want them to be right as they fall under God's plan for tradition. And secondly, this message is not out to change the gospel. Or I should say, lastly, you and I need to remember that we are not saved based on our performance. 
What happens in Malachi 1 is, is a common pattern in the Bible. God takes the initiative, his people respond. God acts, then we act. We love because he first loved us. Now last week, in the first few verses of the book, we learned that God loved Israel. We learned that nothing can undo that. He wanted them to know that he loved them unconditionally and that God has acted and they were to respond to that. It's never the other way around. It's never where you and I act. We do something to merit God's love and he then loves us. No, that's not grace. Because God set his love on Israel, they were to respond in obedience. That teaches us that God doesn't save us just so we can go to heaven when we die. He saves us to be worshipers of him in heaven when we die, but on earth until we die. We're saved for the purpose of worship. The redeemed is saved to worship God. That's true for you and I in our day, and it was true for Israel in their day, according to his prescription. So don't hear this message this morning as though I I need to give God my best so that I can be saved. No. No, we give God our best because we are saved. Because God stepped into our lives in the person of Jesus Christ and life hasn't been the same. So when we stall spiritually, let us consider our worship. That may have a lot to do with the smoke coming out from under the hood. This morning, we're going to rediscover three habits of robust worship as we work through this passage. We're going to do it a few verses at a time, and we'll begin this morning in verse 6. We'll begin with a habit of reverence, a habit of reverence. God is speaking in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. We hear God is not honored by his priests. He begins by presenting them what were accepted norms of the time. In other words, these are truths that everyone should be able to gather around and agree with. Of course a son honors his father. Of course a servant honors his master. And God is a father. That's the message right from the beginning God gave to Pharaoh through Moses. God said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. God forms her. God creates her. God preserves her. I have loved you. I have loved Jacob in Micah chapter 1, verse 2. So God asks, where is my honor? There's that Hebrew word again, kabod. You hear the weightiness in that word. That's what it means. There's a weightiness about this, a heaviness. Those of high esteem in the ancient Near East had a, had a wealth and had a weightiness about them. And this is God. God is divine and God is great and God is glorious. Where is his honor, he asks. Well, secondly, God is a master. That's a term of respect. God is to be respected. Israel is to be God's servant. Deuteronomy 15 even envisions this scenario where the master loves the servant so much that the servant wishes to be, to, to be submissive throughout life. 
I want to be your servant forever would be another way to say it. But where's God's respect? That may not be the best word because this is about much more than just removing a hat for the anthem. This is about reverence or, or godly fear. Do we have a reverence in our worship? And God said that Israel despised his name. And notice here, this is not blasphemy. This is not slander. This is not Israel taking to social media to post angry rants. This is a disregard for God. It's the opposite of honor. If there's a weightiness and a heaviness in which God is to be approached, this is a a, a lightness. If you had placed a $100 bill on the table and then a penny, and you compared the two and each made you feel a certain way and you ascribed worth or value to each, it'd be moving toward the penny. It's that lightness. Compared to, to, to this, that, compared to that, it's, it's going to move toward the, the penny. It's not held in the same esteem as a $100 bill. It's small in comparison. There's, there's a greater value placed on something else. That's what's going on here. And this is the condition of God's people as he describes it in Malachi 1. And we're going to see it in their actions and then we'll see it in their attitude in just a moment. It's going to play itself out in their worship. Israel lost her reverence for God. What about you? Is God boring this morning? Is the routine of our rituals, is this just growing lame? You see, the world around us, if we're not careful, is going to dumb down our worship. It's going to influence our hearts, and our hearts are then going to be impacted as we walk into worship. There's a barrage of entertainment in the world around us. It could influence us to the point of feeling like we need to be entertained when we worship. (laughs) Set aside streaming media and um, social media platforms, worship of God is somewhat unimpressive. Maybe it's consumerism. We get what we want when we want it. We're kind of used to that. Worship needs to be more like Amazon Prime. I can just click and get what I want. It'll be on its way. It'll be delivered soon. I can move on with the rest of my day. Well, we know God doesn't work that way. Not only do we have a God who doesn't give us what we want, he often gives us what we don't want, and he regularly takes a long time to deliver. Maybe we've just made God too much like us. It's not me blinded by his holiness on my face before his throne. It's Jesus and me catching a game together. It's that type of attitude and approach to God. If this is you this morning, if you feel you've lost a step in your reverence, hear the voice of God in this passage. And just know that as you do, he is stern, he is justly angry, but he is extremely loving. He wants his people to come back to him. This is corrective. This is restorative. He's not trying to strike them down. He's not trying to send them to hell. He loves them and wants relationship with them, just as he does you. And he needs to begin with a reverence of who he is. He is to be revered. We need to worship with a habit of reverence. 
Uh, secondly, there's a habit of, int- of attentiveness. There's a habit of attentiveness that's going to accompany robust worship. If we are stalled spiritually, we need to ask how attentive we are to our worship. This is the end of verse 6 as it moves into verse 7. God's speaking, but you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. You notice how this conversation is playing itself out. The Lord is, is predicting the next questions that Israel is going to ask. And we discussed this a bit last week, how this entire book is structured. It's, it's a little bit different than we're used to. Malachi's structured in these discussions or these disputes where there's this back and forth conversation, but, but God is representing Israel and he knows what she would say and he's responding to that. That's how he's making his point or delivering his teaching. And here in this point, God's gonna use the imagery of a table to express his disgust with half-hearted worship. It's kind of like this. God is seated to dine and he's in his mansion, which would be the temple. And the priests are bringing him food, which are the sacrifices. The altar of sacrifice would be the table. And what he's saying to them, essentially, you'll see this drawn out in a moment. You're bringing me leftovers. They're presenting defiled food upon his altar. Now, here's the thing about God. You can't just worship him however you want. Just to give you a few examples of this, on this side of the cross, in the New Testament, the New Testament church, you and I, we can only come to the Father through Jesus. Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except through me. We learn elsewhere in John, John chapter 4, that to worship him, those that wish to must worship him in spirit and truth. So God has given us a prescription on how to approach him and how to worship him. Before Jesus came, in the Old Testament times, Israel had a prescription as well. And a great deal of this surrounded the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system for Israel was how she atoned for sin and how she entered into the presence of God. So Israel would make offerings, sacrifices for all kinds of things to praise God, to atone for sin, to fulfill a vow, and so on. Four of these offerings included animals. You had your bulls and your sheeps and your rams and your pigeons and your doves. You'd be thankful we're not back in that sacrificial system. It was quite a thing. But whatever you offered, it had to be perfect. It had to be perfect. Israel absolutely could not offer defiled sacrifice. Leviticus 22, verse 19, for you to be accepted, a sacrifice must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. Now, the Lord's going to elaborate on this in a minute, but here's what I want you to see so far. The vacuum of air that seemed to reside between the ears of the priests they didn't even realize they were doing wrong. 
Did you pick that up in our reading of verse 7? How have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? They don't argue that they give defiled food, worthless sacrifices. They wonder why it's such a big deal. It could be, again, any of the reasons we listed at the opening of our message this morning. Maybe they're being complacent. They're thinking that we're back in the land, we're back in the temple, we have our jobs and our family and our religion. This is pretty smooth sailing. It could be apathy. They've been subpar for so long, they forget what excellence in worship even is. Maybe they just forgot God's word. Leviticus. God's going to allude to this in chapter 2 in verses 1 through 9. These are really part of our message today, but we're going to divide it into two. We're going to see it next time how biblical truth impacts our spiritual slumps, but the ignorance this morning among these priests is stunning. Well, let's just try an illustration to understand how God feels emotionally about this. Just imagine for a moment a well-respected man. This is a man of, of high morals and high values. This is a family man. He has a wife many children, many grandchildren, many great-grandchildren. This is a man who is a decorated war hero, and he's dedicated his entire life to helping others, to benefiting others. This is a master builder who built by hand many of the homes in his community. And today is his birthday. He's celebrating his 100th birthday And crowds are coming out from that community to show their love and their respect for him. And his son approaches him. And he reaches in his back pocket and he pulls out a chisel. And he gives it to his dad as his present. My dad's a builder. Of course he loves this present. He's giving him this present because he got a newer one and he's happy to pass along his old one. Who would do this? This is the type of thing happening in Israel with their sacrifices in Malachi. It is that level of disrespect and a lack of appreciation for God. It's absent-minded worship. They are inattentive to the task at hand. They're ignorant. Now, I want to acknowledge this morning the everything is worship view that I know we all have. This is Romans 12, verse 1. We love this verse, right? Everything we do is a spiritual service of worship. That is true. But this passage this morning isn't about Israel in the fields and Israel in the tents. This is about Israel when she comes to worship. There's a context for this. She's at the temple. She's supposed to be prepared and dialed in when she comes to worship. Which yields the question for you and I, are we attentive in our worship? And this, this morning here, is about much more than are you paying attention to the sermon. Don't ever come to just listen to the sermon. Worship is much, much more than hearing a sermon. Now, it's been a few years since I taught through the order of service in your bulletin, but we went through that. And if you look at that order of service, everything in there is designed to serve you in your worship. And the aim is to be able to trace all that back to the Bible and have a case or a rationale for what we're doing here. 
to help you walk into the presence of God corporately as the people of God. We sing and we, we pray and we read scripture. Are you aware of your role in worship? I think as we contemplate this, we might be able to do a little bit of a comparison. Thinking about what we value as Westerns, Westerners. Work is a really big deal for us. We value our work. We value the workplace. We value our careers. We can do some comparison here. Are you as attentive to God in your worship as you are your boss at work? Are you as attentive in your worship as you are your career? Just think about this. The workplace has scheduled meetings. The workplace has start times. The workplace has certain tasks to complete. The workplace has coworkers to support. Biblical worship has scheduled meetings. Biblical worship has start times. Biblical worship has certain tasks to complete. And biblical worship has coworkers to support. Are you attentive in your worship? How does it compare? Our third habit this morning for robust worship concerns priority. It's the habit of priority. And this is the bulk of our passage this morning. It begins in verse 8 and runs through the end of verse 11. God is going to elaborate on what he's declared so far, and he's going to spend some time giving them some specific examples. Malachi chapter 1, verse 8, God speaks, But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to you? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Well, Israel gave God her leftovers. And this is detailed first in her actions and then the source of it, her attitude. And God calls her deeds evil. She's just not giving God the best. The animals for sacrifice we see were blind. That's specifically forbidden in the Bible. Back in, again, Leviticus 22. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord. Some were lame. Some of your Bible versions will will read crippled. Some were sick. That would at least include diseased, but perhaps they were injured. I mean, maybe they were wounded and useless in the field. I mean, perhaps Israel was just trying to be practical, right? Practical people. Burn the bad animals. Save the good ones. It's better to give some sacrifice than none at all. 
And we're poor, and, and God is love. He'll understand. But God says they would treat their human rulers in no such way. Why not offer to your governor, he says. Would he be pleased with you? And by the way, on this question, the Lord really dials it in. The word you changes. I know we don't see it in English, but it becomes singular here, where he really wants to make it personal. He's saying you, each of you, you and you and you, would you offer it to your governor? As opposed to that more corporate all of you. He's changing. He's getting very personal. And he wants the priests here to think about what they're allowing. Fence the altar. Hold a standard. Reject what the people bring if it doesn't meet the expectations. And furthermore, teach the people. He's saying you would not give these sacrifices to human rulers. In the ancient Near East, an offering would often be made to human rulers, called governors in this passage, Persian governors, those folks, those aliens from another country coming in and ruling over our land. It could be some way to secure their favor for something. It could be even a tribute, something that is owed to them, similar to a tax. And you know what the ruler might do when this offering is given? Especially if it's something blind or crippled or sick. He would insult the giver. He would laugh at them. He'd put down the giver of a gift. God says, you would never give this to one of your rulers. Why would you give it to me? How offended is God at this half-hearted worship? Look at verse 10. Verse 10 is devastating. The best priest right now is the one who closes the doors to worship. Shut down the song and dance. It's better to quit this whole production than to worship with leftovers because it undermines the greatness of God's name. Twice in verse 11, he declares it. My name will be great among the nations. Israel was to be a light among the nations and her worship barely produced a spark. So God will make his name great among the nations. This is a movement toward the Gentiles. Non-Israelites would be welcomed by God and his name would be great. Worship was not a priority. And God is not pleased with Israel's conduct. And consider her attitude, verse 12, but you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Did you hear the words they spoke? How tiresome it is they were saying. Some of your Bibles say, oh, what a nuisance this is. This is interrupting their schedule, perhaps. It's requiring effort from them. It costs them something. And rather than prioritizing worship, Rather than putting the effort into it and giving themselves to it, they complain. 
and profane it. And they bring it down to their level. It becomes common, just another thing to do in the week. And God says you disdainfully sniff at it. That's kind of like a snort. This is like the guy at work who comes up to you and tells you what the boss just told him to do, and he kind of snorts about it. That's the guy who knows the better way to do it. I don't need the boss telling me what to do. He does things his way. He knows what is best. The Lord closes our passage with this pretender. In verse 14, it's the Israelite who says he's going to offer the choice sacrifice, but keeps it at home kind of for himself and takes the broken one instead. Israel did not place a priority in worshiping God with their best. And that's a problem because God declares, I am a great king. And just like Israel, you and I are here to worship a great king. Giving him our best and not our leftovers, that is our aim. Making worship a priority with attention and with reverence. Some of you this morning have been Christians for decades. You've been in this church for years. It's been the same songs, and the same sermons, and the same traditions. You've been walking the same path in and out of worship. I grew up in central Pennsylvania, and there my grandfather was a dairy farmer. And he was a dairy farmer throughout his entire adult life, even going back to his younger years. And where the barn stood on his property and where the house stood, there was a large yard between the two. And every day, twice a day, morning and evening, he would walk the same path back and forth to milk the cows. And he would wear a path in this grass. In other words, there was a segment that you never needed to mow. That's where Grandpa walked back and forth to milk the cows. He could probably walk it with his eyes closed. He, he did this... Um, throughout his entire life, his adult life, and he did it in every season. He did it through the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, twice a day, every day. You know, for those here this morning who've been walking the same path in and out of worship for some time, that is a great thing to praise. That is good. For others, you will find over the years of your life that we will wear a path, Lord willing, we will wear a path in and out of worship with God's people. This can become a very easy thing to do to go through the motions where worship becomes just a thing we do. A well-worn path, as I mentioned, is a gift to walk. We can praise God that we have it, but at times it can also become a narrow rut, especially in those stormy seasons where it becomes muddy. I want to close here very practically For all of us, whether you have a well-worn path or you're just beginning to tamp down the grass, there is practical application for us here. If this morning in some way you find yourself in room for reformation in this area of your life, we have practical application. First, if there's room to change, the first thing we need to do is repent. We need to confess our sin to God. We need to simply talk to him about this. Whatever's stealing your worship, whatever's hindering your best, confess that to God. God will forgive you and give you grace and power to begin anew. 
Listen, here's the thing not to do. Do not, whatever you do, do not take this and go and try to tidy up your life. That is not where we begin with this. Don't dress a little nicer. Don't sing a little louder. It begins with the heart. It begins with the heart before God. And then all of those other things, all of these outward expressions, they will follow that. God is gonna fill all that in when our hearts are right, when we've repented of our sin, and they might look different among us. We might express ourselves a little bit differently, but our hearts need to get right with God on this. It needs to begin with repentance. Secondly, we need to prioritize. We need to make worship a priority in our lives. Say it another way, don't tell God you love him. Tell him, but show him. Show that love for the Lord. I realize that worship here can be difficult. I am not the world's best preacher. There are going to be people among you that are difficult to love. I'm gonna say things you're gonna disagree with. It's gonna be easier some Sundays not to come. Listen, there are a list of reasons not to worship. But the one reason to worship far outsurpasses them. God is a great king. And if we did some math and we wrote down all the reasons not to worship and we came up with some sum of what that is and we compared it to the sum of what it means for God to be the great king, God would outweigh that. There would be no close number to match the two. And I just want to add this because I know that I'm speaking in many ways to the choir. Some of you have been doing this week in and week out for a long, long time. And you need to be encouraged and commended for that this morning. Because you are sending a message to your spouses, to your children, to your grandchildren. You are showing them what matters. And we don't know what the future holds for all of these people in our lives who do not yet know the Lord, but I know that they're watching you. And you know that they know that you know They know that you love Jesus Christ. We can go with that. And that's the biggest point in all of this. Like, we don't know what the future holds for any of us, but we know that we're honoring God. We know we're following God. We're being faithful to worship God. And that can make a difference in the lives of those watching us too. Well, lastly, know God, quite simply know God. Worship God outside of Sunday. Sunday isn't the magic bullet that fixes our lives, but it's one more way that God gives us grace to live a life that honors Jesus Christ. And my hope would be that when we gather together on Sundays, this is simply a culmination of what's happening in your life with the Lord through the week. That is an aim to strive for. What we do here is set apart. It should be different from the rest of the week. It is holy. It is unique. But at the same time, we ought to have a relationship with the Lord through the week. Because after all, the Lord God is a great king. And after all, the Lord God is your great king. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for setting your love upon us and giving us grace and changing our affections and our desires and our will. Lord, sometimes we stall. We hit the skids spiritually, Lord, and we struggle. These struggles come in all kinds of packages, and I think you understand them even better than we can articulate.
But I pray for any today, Lord, who are struggling spiritually. If this is the element that needs fixed, Lord, I pray you'd meet them where they are. I pray that you would reform our worship in as much as we need that. And for those of us, Lord, who, who might be doing well today, but we might have a dark season coming up, please give us a grace to never forget to call upon you and to remember the glorious promises of your presence and your power. Lord, we love you and we pray all of these things to you, our great God, in Jesus' name, amen.